You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Whatever happened to the bond between doctor and patient? Joining us to discuss rebuilding the primary relationship in medicine, the relationship between patient and physician, is Director of Clinical Research, Assistant Professor of Medicine, and Emergency Department Physician at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center, New York City, Dr. David H. Newman. David, welcome to Inspired to Act. It's a pleasure to be here, Marty. Thanks for having me. I just finished actually reading your very provocative book entitled Hippocrates' Shadow, and one of the main themes of that book involves what you call the love-hate relationship between medicine and science. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about what your thoughts are in that regard. You're exactly right. I mean, a lot of the book is about this almost ironic relationship we have with science, the way we love science and sort of cling to science. And when I say we, I mean doctors and patients. We all want science to be sort of nearly perfect and we want it to fix our, you know, what ails us. And doctors want that as much as anybody. And and as doctors, we tend to cling to that science. And at the same time, we sort of hate that science. We hate the fact that reading numbers all day and looking at lab tests pulls us away from our patients and the human contact that we have. At the beginning of your book, one of the first examples you give actually is about MS. And of course, it caught my attention because I'm a neurologist. You said that MS is a prime example of medicine's rudimentary understanding of disease. Could you tell us what you mean by that, rudimentary understanding? Yeah, you know, I mean, as you know, Marty, obviously, you're, you're far more familiar with this than I am, but MS is such a fascinating disorder for so many reasons, but one of them is that there is this sort of X-file-like nature to the epidemiology of MS, where we have discovered that in, in many parts of the world, the farther you go north latitude up towards about 40 degrees latitude, the higher the incidence of MS gets at birth. And then the closer you get to the equator, the lower the incidence gets. And then at the same time, if you're 20 years old and you move from 40 degrees latitude, say in Vermont somewhere, and you move down towards the equator, well, you're probably still just as likely to develop MS. But if you move at the age of 5 or 10 before adolescence, it would appear that you pretty much become just like one of the locals once you move down towards the equator and you all of a sudden have a much lower incidence of MS. And all these facts about MS, which are really fascinating, are complete mysteries to us. Uh, I like to use the example because we don't know that much as, about MS or about you know, medicine in general. We are still sitting on the verge of you know, leaping into just an ocean of the unknown right now. And maybe a hundred years, a couple hundred years down the line, we will have tackled a, a lot more of that. But right now, our understanding of science is definitely limited. Yeah, of course, people have always been on the cutting edge, haven't they? I mean, you quote Hippocrates extensively, and he obviously was a great role model for all of us, but he was also on the cutting edge, wasn't he? Was, there was a point at which they knew nothing. He learned a little something. We're also on the cutting edge. We don't know everything about MS, but we know a lot more than he knew. Don't, do you agree or not? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, before Hippocrates, medicine was it was mysticism, really. I mean, it was this sort of Escalopian model of medicine where people went up into a temple high up on the mountain where the air was clean, and they took a little sedative that they'd been given by one of the priests up there, and the priest whispered something in their ear while they were sleeping and, you know, made them think that they were having a dream, and then they were supposed to sort of heal themselves with the dream. And whatever the dream message was was supposed to be their healing message. So, you know, that was a really mystical way of practicing medicine. Hippocrates turned it into something much more empirical. He was all about objectively observing 
uh, gathering data, and then trying at the same time to use that objective data to heal patients and learning from patterns of disease. That, so he was really on the cutting edge, and he brought the mystical together with the scientific. He was able to straddle the line between what's philosophical about healing and what's body-mind connection and what is scientific and objective. And that's something that we're still struggling with today. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss rebuilding the bond between patient and physician is Director of Clinical Research, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Emergency Physician at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York City, Dr. David Newman. David, you made a big point in one of the chapters of your book, which was entitled We Don't Agree, about the fact that doctors disagree with each other a lot, and you described these uh, events on rounds where the senior doctors are all disagreeing and the junior doctors are sort of sitting there rocking back and forth on their heels, scribbling notes in sort of a mindless fashion. I wonder uh, if you think disagreement among doctors is a good thing or a bad thing. I couldn't tell by reading your book what you thought about that. Well, you know, so it is not just, and I think this will largely answer your question, it's not just that we disagree with each other. One of the studies that I talk about in the book, which is one of my favorite studies ever, is a study where they take three of the sort of most highly trained radiologists in the country, one of them who I think was the head of the American Thoracic Society at the time, and then another one who was sort of leading chairman at a radiology department, and the third who was just like these two. And they gave them each 30 x-rays, and they had them read the x-rays. And then they compared the diagnoses from the chest x-rays, the 30 chest x-rays, and asked each of them for the diagnosis and looked at what the agreement was, and they agreed seldom. I mean, it was like a 30% agreement rate, 40% agreement rate. But what they didn't tell the doctors is when they were doing that study, what they were actually doing was handing each doctor, instead of 30 x-rays, it was 10 x-rays three times. And so each one of these physicians was reading the same 10 x-rays three times, and they looked at not only whether they agreed with each other, but whether they agreed with themselves. And it turned out they agreed with themselves about 30 or 40% of the time as well. So they, they didn't really agree with each other any more than they agreed with themselves. And the point I was making about that and the point I, w- I want to make about agreement in medicine is that there are elements of disagreement that are totally natural, totally normal, and that we should embrace. What they are are places where our science has a lot to learn. Anytime we were trained in the same science and we disagree completely on a particular element of that science, it's an element where we don't have the evidence yet to tell us a definitive answer. And what we haven't been really great at in medicine is being upfront about where it's really opinion that's our guiding principle and where it really is good evidence. And agreement is a reflection of that. I often thought to myself that disagreement was a healthy thing, that it was a sign of progress, almost the same thing as mistakes, that mistakes allow us to rethink the way we've been doing things. And if we analyze them properly, it might get us going forward. If we all agreed with each other, don't you think we would just stay in the same place? Yeah, I mean, you know, agreement's great, but disagreement's even better in a way. I agree. You know, you need the disagreement to really foment a good intellectual debate, but you only need it where you don't have great evidence to tell you the answer. And we have so many areas of medicine where we don't have great medicine to tell us the answer. You know, when you're disagreeing about things that are based on opinion, that's great. That's what we should be doing. That's how you make progress. But what we shouldn't be doing is disagreeing a whole lot when there is great evidence behind a particular practice or a guideline or a recommendation. It seems to me at that point you actually are, in a way, falling into your own trap. That is, you're using science as a sort of the end point, which sort of ends discussion. Isn't that what you just said, that once we know with good studies, then we don't have to disagree any longer? That's exactly right. When you invoke science as the final answer 
you better be doing it with evidence. And, you know, that's what we, in medical school, I think we're taught a lot of things. We're given the sort of impression that things are scientific that aren't that are really more opinion-based. And so a lot of times we've had trouble differentiating the the difference between what's essentially an opinion-based model of practice and what's really great evidence that we have to to guide our practice. And it's made us really frustrated. I mean, I know I, as a physician, was really frustrated to learn some of the things that I found out doing the research for the book about, you know, various practices that we engage in that really aren't evidence-based at all. But I was taught as if they were pure fact. And when I found out they weren't pure fact, you know, that's That's tough, and I think it makes physicians feel disaffected. If we could separate the difference between evidence and opinion, we'd be a lot happier, and our patients would trust us a lot more, and we'd, you know, really be using the science, you know, in a way that maximizes what's fact and what is really based on our best guess. You had a section about the number needed to treat, which is one way of looking at the value of a particular procedure or test or way of approaching patients. But I wonder if one should depend that much on it. I mean, for example, if I told you that you had a 74-year-old patient who's a smoker, hypertensive, and he had an episode of hemiplegia and aphasia that lasted for about 15 minutes and went completely away, what would you actually do with that patient? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're asking is, what kind of benefit can we offer that patient? What kind of interventions do we have that we can offer that patient? And how effective are those interventions? So the number needed to treat is a way of converting how many people like that you and I would need to identify and treat in order to have saved one of them from either having a stroke or dying prematurely or having some kind of a bad outcome. And, you know, I think the thing that I want to embrace and sort of convey about not only the number needed to treat, but almost any statistical concept, is that it needs to be rooted in what the patient wants and what the patient needs and our advocacy for what they want and need. So while you and I want the person who's a diabetic hypertensive, you know, coronary artery disease patient, we want them desperately to be on medicines to get whatever they need, maybe a carotid Doppler, maybe an MR to try and figure out what interventions we can offer them that would stave off strokes and bad outcomes. Some patients are going to say to us, oh, You mean you have to do this for 20 people before one of them is affected and there's only a 1 in 20 chance it's going to affect me? Well, that person gets to be involved in that decision. You and I have those tools and we want to use them, but we need people to understand how to prioritize our interventions and our, you know, all the things we offer because when we paternalize for them, when we choose for them, when we make somebody think that there's a 99% chance they're going to die without an antihypertensive medicine, when in fact it's usually more like a 1% chance they're going to die without it. While we may have a public health impact overall, for the individual human, we're becoming a little disaffected in our patient-doctor bond there because we're not really advocating for them on an individual scale. And so part of what the NNT chapter is about is a way of getting back to what Hippocrates did, which is to really sit down with the human and figure out what their priorities are and, you know, how to best serve them and advocate for them allowing them and the doctor to really understand what the statistical effect is going to be, what the, what the likelihood of really benefiting somebody is with a given intervention. Your last chapter was called A New Old Paradigm, and you quoted Bayes and Heisenberg and Kurt Goodell and, and so on. I, I wonder if you could tell us what you think the cure is. I mean, what should the doctors listening to this program actually do to reverse some of these, these problems that you've outlined in your book? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think... The book is very much trying to get at the fact that what we need more than anything in medicine is, is we need to change our minds. We need a new mindset. 
we need a way of looking at medicines that's different than the way we've been looking at it. We were taught to believe in medicine as a certain paradigm, and we need to get back to a sort of an, an older paradigm, a Hippocratic paradigm of advocacy. And I think that's going to make us happier. I really feel like a lot of physicians are disaffected right now because they feel like all the machinations of science and the pills and the procedures we do, we know that the impact for those things is frequently very small. And yet the impact that we have with human contact, with really talking and, and understanding people and being understood, that's what we craved. That's why we went into medicine. And if we got back to that, the pills and the procedures work better and we have a better effect, we have a bigger impact. And so I think what we need more than anything is a way to approach medicine differently than we've approached it by understanding where the science is powerful and understanding where it's weaker and where we can, just as humans, interacting with humans, really facilitate the best parts of our science. I'd like to thank my guest, Director of Clinical Research, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Emergency Department Physician at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York City, Dr. David Newman, Thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. Thanks, Marty. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels 